Uh, good morning, Cornerstone. Talked to several of you this week, uh, today, and many of you mentioned my glasses. That was one of the first things you guys said about me. This is what happened. Well, I'm preaching through young men, so I thought I would try to look as young as possible. <laughs> That's one excuse. Second is, uh, you know, I ran out of contacts and my optometrists are somewhere in Vietnam. <laughs> I don't know what they're doing over there or not. They're adopting a precious child and I can't, you know, tell them not to go because of my contacts. So that's the reason. So I hope it's not as distracting for you as, uh, as it, it might be. Well, someone asked me again this morning, uh, how was your week? And uh, I'm sure for most of you it was a difficult week because of Monday. Um, we studied on past Sunday about the foolishness of young men. We looked at the current condition of young men in the world today. We looked at how, quoting from J.C. Rao, if you were to ask uh, pastors of any church which part of his congregation fills him with most anxiety and heartache, ask pastors who in his flock are the hardest to manage, require the greatest and most warnings and rebukes, who occasion in him the greatest fear for their souls and seem most helpless, depend on it, men, especially young men. We studied last week, ask parents throughout the country and ask what they will generally say. Who in their families give them most pain and trouble? Who need the most watchfulness, most often disturb and disappoint them? Who most frequently break out into open sin and disgrace the family name? Depend on it, parents will say, young men. Ask the judges and police officers who are the most arrested for drunkenness, disturbing the peace, fighting, stealing, assaults, and the like. Who fills the jails and the prisons? And Raoul's answer was, they will answer back, depend on it, men, young men. So we look together, the state of young men in the world, and how young men need to know Christ for their own souls. How young men need to grow in godliness. And then Monday, we were faced with this uh, foolish and evil young man, utter foolishness, utter wickedness, who murdered 32 people in Virginia Tech. And so we saw firsthand the truthfulness of our study, the urgency of our study. And if we're honest with ourselves, what separates all the men here, what separates us from that murderer? What separates us? Very little. Only thing that separates me from him is God's grace, God's mercy. There have been times in my life as a young man, I was as angry at him. There were moments where I was as in such despair as him. So rebellious, so wicked, so foolish as him. The only thing that separates him from me and what he did from but my life is the grace and mercy, and as Elizabeth said, faithfulness of God. So we need to be mindful of the sins in this world, the sins that are also in our hearts. And in that backdrop, understand our desperate need for wisdom from the Scriptures. That our study from Titus 2 is not just theory. It's not just for Sunday mornings. It's not just living in high places and understanding theology and doctrine, it has relevancy practically, practically to, our, to our lives, to our families, and to our, to, to our church and to this world. So with that understanding, knowing the, the sin that's in our flesh, let's again look to the Scriptures. Let's again go to God. And as sinful men seek God's wisdom, let's set aside all of our presumption, all our high-mindedness, our pride, our judgmental attitude, our lofty thoughts of ourselves. Let's put those aside because, man, if any, any ounce of that remains in your heart, this teacher will be of no value to you. Just like what Elizabeth said. She was reading Isaiah every day and it was nothing. She didn't gain nothing from it. She was, it was a source of deception for her because pride sad in our heart. Likewise, if we have pride in our hearts this morning, all the wisdom of the scriptures, all the insights, all the understandings, the value of the word of God will be not for us. If we allow sin 
allow pride, self-centeredness to sit in the throne of our hearts. Let's stand together and read it once again. Titus 2, 1 through 15. Titus chapter 2, 1 through 15. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Slaves are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession, who are zealous for good works. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Please be seated. It's amazing to me how I look back on my youth pastor days and I learned so many things about ministry from my experiences there. Ministry to young people is an incredible privilege and I look back with much fondness. There were a lot of sorrow and pain involved with being a youth pastor, but wow, this precious spiritual insight was gleaned from my time interacting with young people. I told this story many times, uh, how a young man came to Christ, maybe a sophomore in high school, and he went home excitedly and told his parents how he became a Christian. He came back next week and he was all dejected, he was very, very grieved and been sorrowful, and I said, what happened, brother? He said, well, I told my mom I became a Christian. And she responded to me by saying, you should be a human being first, right? You should become a decent human being. Then tell me about being a Christian. So she was talking about him cleaning his room, right? Him, um, you know, being nice to his younger sister. Him being just a good person, a good son. Don't tell me about being a Christian. Show me that you can be a person, a human being first. Then tell me about following Christ. Wow, I, I, I felt his pain as he was telling me this story, but I couldn't help but agree with his mom because I've been to his room, right? <laughs> I've seen how you couldn't see the carpet when you walked into his room. I've seen how there was food that was uh, growing in different colors in his room, and it was obvious he needed a lot of help just to, just to be a human being, let alone follow Christ. Well, likewise with being a godly man. I think all men here are Christians. We're pursuing, seeking to be a man of God. I've said this many times. This might be just a similar sermon that I've given many times during this context to the men of our church. But honestly, before you can be a godly man, you must be a man first. And that's been the struggle of our church for so many years. We're trying to um, pursue godliness as men, but we are finding that 
the raw substance is much to be desired in many of our men. That they're still pursuing manhood. And so it's far too presumptuous or too early to be pursuing godliness when it should be just basic manhood that uh, we should be pursuing after. You can't be a godly man if you're not a man first. It is essential, is it not, for a boy to go through this maturation process. And then once he can be at least be labeled as a young man, can he become a godly man? Even our Lord Jesus Christ, he was fully man. He went through this. He was born as a baby. He went through his toddler stage. He went through his, you know, when he was a young man, very young, in his teens. And he went through this maturation process where he stopped being a boy and he became a young man. We see this um, marked transition in a key event in Christ's life in Luke chapter 2, 41 through 52. Luke 2, 41. The writer, gospel writer Luke says, his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. Every year they would go make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And this is an account of when he was 12 years old. And when the feast was ended as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem and his parents did not know it. Such a large group, they had no idea that Jesus was not in their midst. After a full day's journey, think of the horror for Mary, Joseph, but think of the horror for Mary. They realized that Jesus was not with them. So they make a whole day's journey back to Jerusalem. After three days, he's a 12-year-old boy. I separated from his parents for three days. They found him. In the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions, interacting with the scholars, the rabbis of Israel. And all who heard Jesus were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And look at Christ's response. He said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? This is the answer of a young man, not a boy. At 12 years old, he doesn't respond by crying. He doesn't respond by blame shifting, getting defensive, getting angry. Our Lord it's not defensive. There's a temper tantrum. He answers his parents, his mom in great distress. He says, why were you searching for me all over Jerusalem? You should have known that I must be about the father's business. That's a more accurate translation. The father's house, doing my father's work. They didn't understand. He went down with them. Jesus was submissive to them. His mother treasured all these things in her heart. Look at verse 52. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature before God and man. So before God, of course, but before man, people's estimation of Christ increased as he matured from a boy to a man. In terms of wisdom, in terms of stature, his reputation, his life, respectability, their view of Jesus, not talking about his prayer life, his knowledge of the word or ministry, just who he is, who he was as a man, increased before God and before man. So we see our Lord going through this maturation process from a boy to a man. So we see that in Christ, and we need to see that in in all of us, in all of us. How do we grow in favor before man? 
what are some distinguishing characteristics that separate a boy from a man? Let us consider several differences between boys and men. Some, some thoughts here, some perspectives. Some uh, distinguishing characteristics of boys is that they are constantly seeking to be entertained. But this last week, their greatest fear in life, one of their greatest fears is boredom. And their lifelong daily pursuit is entertainment, distraction, something to occupy their thoughts. His life revolves around fun and pleasure. Amusement is a priority to him. Consumes a significant amount of his time, his energy, and money. Heard about uh, like these video consoles, video game consoles cost like six ninety nine, five ninety nine, and it's amazing to me how can little kids afford that? Well, it's not marketed towards little kids; it's mar- marketed towards men, and for them, it's a priority, and they'll shell out, you know, almost a mortgage payment. Not in L.A., not in California, but a mortgage payment <laughs> in Middle America. Or, or video games, right? Well, because that's the mark of boys. They avoid hard work when they can. They avoid, they run away from sacrifice, responsibility. They go to work and, man, they, don't, they want the least amount of responsibility as possible. Every priority is fun and everything else is subsumed to that priority. Now, the distinguishing marks of a man is that his priority is God. His priority is Family, right? Its prior, priority is ministry and work. And guys, I'm, I hope you understand, I'm, I'm a young man trying to be a man. I'm still striving. I, I think it was like a few weeks ago, I preached on, I don't know what I preached on. It was about like responsibility and taking care of our wives. I think it was that, right? Shepherding our wives and I'm going to serve, sacrifice and love them and care for them. And that Sunday, was my wife was sick and she didn't come to church. So I preached that sermon. Second hour, we did something. And then you know what I did? I called my wife to see if I could play sports <laughs> instead of come home and care for her. So I was like, this battle raging in my heart. My wife is sick, three kids. I should be home helping her. But I called her. And uh, I don't know. I think I went home and then went and played ball, right? <laughs> Try to do both. So I'm still growing in this area as well. I'm still trying to fight that boy inside of me and try to make um, God, family, ministry, and work my priority. For men, entertainment is it's, it's okay. You know, entertainment is part of life. Recreation is ordained by God. But it's after one has fulfilled one's responsibility. Life revolves around God, family, ministry, and work. Their best time, their best energy is given to God, family, and work. He invites hard work. He wants to sacrifice. He wants more responsibility. Like he wants crunch time. He wants the ball. Right? He wants the resp- he wants the blame if he misses a shot. At work, he's telling his bosses, "Give me more." At home, he's telling his wife, I'll handle more. In ministry, at church, he's saying, Pastor, elders, Bible study leader, I'm there for you. Right? I'll sleep less. Right? I'll wake up earlier. I'll be all the more diligent. I'll cut more fat out of my life because I want to grow in being a responsible man. You know, Men see toys as they are, as potential threats to his life, family, and ministry. They understand recreation and rest, right? entertainment. They're all ordained by God and it's use, useful in their proper place. But they also understand because of the deceptiveness of sin in our flesh, because of our inner propensity, because of our laziness, our predisposition towards, towards fun things, amusement, they see these things as potential threats to one's, one's life. And once he sees himself making much of these things, or these things becoming much in his life, he takes swift action 
and he asks for help to take such action. Second difference is that boys are dependent on people. Boys are needy. They are spiritually dependent, emotionally, physically, financially. They are needy. They are not self-sufficient. They are spiritually weak, emotionally fragile, and physically, practically inept. They don't know how to figure things out. They don't know how to solve problems. They don't know. They know how to start things, but they don't know how to finish things. And financially, they're constantly in debt. And they're comfortable being in debt to others. They're, they're fine with being dependent on others. Right? Fine when they have financial debt. Even, they, even when they owe friends money, they are comfortable. Right? They are comfortable. Men seek to be debt free. Romans 13.8 let no debt remaining outstanding. Let, let no debt remain outstanding, except the debt of love. Right. Psalm thirty-seven twenty-one. The wicked are differentiated from the righteous in that they borrow and they do not repay. The righteous, Psalm thirty-seven twenty-one. They borrow and they repay. But not only that, the righteous give generously. They have an abundance because they're so productive. They're so diligent in their lives. They have a wealth. They have an abundance and they give generously. They provide for others instead of being dependent upon others. Men are not dependent on people. They're dependent on God. They They stand by convictions in the scriptures. And they follow Christ. We see our Christ in this way. Mark chapter 3, 21 through 25. You know, his family, his mom and his half-brothers thought he was crazy. He had this uh, delusion of grand, delusions of grandeur as the, the messianic complex. So he thinks he's the Messiah. So they went and went looking for him. And they demanded that he come home with them. Jesus' mom demanded that he would stop this foolishness of being the savior of the world and come home. And our Lord's response was not of a little boy. Oh, I gotta go home. My mom's calling me. You know, my mommy's mad. I gotta go. His response is, who's, who's my mother? Who are my brothers and sisters? Those that are in the kingdom of God. He followed God. He followed his father. He followed his convictions as a man. And he didn't fear members of his own family, even his mom. Third difference between boys and men is that um, boys don't keep their word. You can't take boys seriously. A lot of talk, but very little follow through. He's one of those guys that says a lot about a lot of things, and he's filled with dreams and aspirations and it's all just daydreaming because you know it's just talk. You just, you know, and the people that are close to him don't really uh, take him seriously. People that don't know him might take him seriously because they don't know that he's just all talk. But people that know his track record know, oh, he's a good starter, but he doesn't follow through. And yeah, he promised us these things, but uh, I'd be surprised if it happens. That's a mark of a young boy. They're sincere, but they just don't have the self-control, self-discipline, the heart commitment to follow through on promises. But not men. Men understand the value of his reputation. Men understand how words are important, words are powerful, words are what maintains one's integrity. Direct connection between words and a man's reputation. A man understands that. Psalm 15.1 Who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly, does what is right, speaks truth in his heart. Who does not slander with his tongue, does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend. 
who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to, an, to his own hurt and does not change. Such a man can sojourn in God's holy hill. He swears to his own hurt. He makes a promise and he keeps it, especially when it hurts him. That's a man of integrity. That's a man. If you keep your word only when it's convenient, only when it's beneficial, you're not holding your promise. You're not keeping your word. Keeping your word means when it hurts, when it's inconvenient, when it's difficult, you follow through. One more, guys. It hurts me as much as it hurts you. Trust me. Um, Fourth difference is a boy doesn't understand his God-given role as head over woman. So a boy seeks counsel, seeks help, seeks comfort from women. And you know, boys, they don't treat women with respect, with propriety and courtesy. You know, you go to elementary schools and what do boys do to girls, right? They hit them, right? They push them around. They make fun of them. Oh, that's what boys do, right? They're afraid of the girls, right? Or they like a girl and they respond through violence, right? (laughs) That's not what men do, right? Men serve women. We understand it's our role to be their protectors, that we're there to give them honor. We're there to help them, serve them, guide them, counsel them. We are to be the rock upon which they stand, not vice versa. Right? Boys are girl-centered. Their life revolves around girls. Right? They are dependent spiritually, emotionally, financially on women. This is what Al Mohler said in his blog. So don't get angry at me. This is Al Mohler. He said, and he calls such boys wimps. Wimps, on the other hand, look to women for emotional support. They consider girlfriends to be conversational partners and look to women for pity. Look to women for pity. Not for men. Men understand their role especially in relation to women. No wonder godly men are rare because in our society, in our culture, men are rare. It doesn't matter how old you are. You look at their lives. You look at just men, just men. We're filled with men who who are extending their adolescence. Arrested development. They're 40 years old, but they have a thinking of 13-year-olds. I mean, they're, you know, let me just go on and on. But that's the reality of our culture today. So if men are rare, how much more rare is our godly men? So we need to grow in this area. And we need to grow in the spiritual area as well. As we pursue being men, God calls us to be godly men. Now, Inspired by the Holy Spirit, if we were to ask Apostle Paul, what's the most important trait you would encourage in a young man? Right? Paul, like in your philosophy of ministry, you're a man. Paul is in every way a man, is a godly man, a tough guy, strong guy, man of conviction, a man whose mind is saturated with the truth of Scripture, a man whose life is driven by conviction, not by opinions of others. If we were to ask Paul, Paul, what would be the first and foremost thing you would urge a young man to pursue after? What would it be? And we have the answer right here in Titus 2.6. Right? Paul says he must be sober-minded. Urge young men to have sound judgment. Self-control. Paul tells us the first key character quality for men to develop is self-control, sound judgment. So important. If you, have a, if you have a son in your family, if you have a younger brother, if you are a younger man, if you're leading younger men, we need to live in Titus 2.6. We need to pursue and help others pursue 
to become thinking men. Men who have self-control, self-mastery, a spiritually alert man. Makes so much sense, doesn't it? If anything, young men are inclined to be impulsive, unrestrained, impetuous, rash, unthinking, or thinking about the wrong things. That's the natural inclination of, of men, especially young men. So the basic need of men is to be to have sound mind and self-control. It's this word, sophroneo, so pregnant with meaning. But two words really encapsulate the meaning of this Greek word. Sound judgment and self-control. It's both and. Sound judgment and self-control. I'll be repeating these two, uh, two phrases over and over again. Right? Sound, sound judgment. A man who thinks clearly. And self-control. He has the discipline to live out his clear thinking. Right? If you have sound judgment but you have no self-control, you're it's worthless. Right? If you have self-control, you have discipline, but you have like your foolishness, it's worthless. It's gotta be both. You gotta think the right thing, think clearly. And you gotta be, you gotta have the wisdom, the discipline, the control, the mastery to appropriate the wisdom of your mind into practical life, practical daily living. Man with sound judgment seeks not to be enslaved by habits, vices, or weaknesses. He does not allow his desires, emotions, lusts, expectations, thoughts, hopes, or anger control him. Man with sound judgment stays spiritually alert. He navigates his life and that of his family by God's word and the wisdom from God's word. He does not make impulsive decisions. He doesn't, for example, buy things impulsively. He doesn't lose his mind over issues. He doesn't get angry or even fights over non-essentials or preferences. He doesn't forget to think things through. But he pauses quite often and he thinks through every move of his life. Right? It's so important, this quality in, young, in a young man. A young man cannot mature into a godly man, fulfill his God-given role or be used by God even without first cultivating this quality of sensibility and self-control. He must master his own life before he can lead others. Let me paraphrase 1 Timothy 3, 4, 5. And Paul said, if you can't manage your own household, how can you manage the church or elders or for men? If you can't manage your own mind, if your own heart is out of control, how are you going to control your life? How are you going to lead others? Right? If you have no discipline over your own actions, how can you Shepherd your wife and lead a family. Right? If you can't micromanage, how can you macromanage? Right? If you can't run with men, what are you doing running with horses? Right? This quality is repeated throughout the book of Titus, highlighting its importance. Titus 1, 7 and 8. Paul rattles off a list of qualifications for elders in the church, overseers and pastors. An overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach, must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, self-renail, right there again. A distinguishing characteristic of an elder is that he has sound judgment and he's self-controlled. Titus 2 one and two, older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, and sophroneo, self-controlled. Older men. Titus 2, verse 5, older women are to train young, younger women to love their husbands and children and to be what? Self-controlled, sophroneo again. Titus 2, 6, likewise, urge the younger man to be sophroneo. Titus 2, 11 and 12, the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and instead to live 
sophroneo lives. Instead of ungodly, worldly passions, we are to pursue sober judgment. Paul uses this Greek word a total of six times in a letter of three chapters. In a matter of two chapters, actually, he uses this word six times, highlighting to us how important it is. Elders, older men, older women, younger women, younger men. In fact, everyone should have this quality to be a salt and light to this world, to mature, to grow in Christ. This common word simply means to develop again self-mastery, self-control, balance, to get one's faculties and appetites, longings and desires, to harness, to developing discernment and judgment, exhibiting this kind of self-control in their lives. I mean, this is so contrary to our culture, isn't it? Our, our culture not only practices sensual, impulsive, and rash judgments, but our culture, our society, endorses them, encourages, uh, applauds uh, such, uh, such uh, lifestyles, such decisions, such behavior. In fact, if you look at the culture in this island of Crete, very similar to our culture. The society in the island of Crete where Titus was ministering was a culture where living without control was both accepted and encouraged. Titus 1, verse 12, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own said, Cretans are always liars. They have no control of their tongues. They're evil beasts. They have no control of their behavior. They live like animals, live on impulse. They're lazy gluttons, no control over their appetites and desires. That was the climate in which Titus was ministering at. So Paul's telling Titus to urge the church to come out from the world and be different. And what, set, what will set you apart and what you will cause the gospel to shine brightly is when you are set apart from this world by sound judgment and self-control. If you look at verse 7, I have in my version, in all respects. I believe NIV, NAS has in all things. That phrase goes better with verse 6 than verse 7. Actually, you know, many commentators, and I would agree, believe that, th- that those three words go with being sophroneo, not so much with Titus and, being, and as leaders. So Paul is admonishing younger men to have sound judgment and self-control in everything. In every area of our lives, we are to manifest this quality. Sound thinking, self-control in every area of their in every area of life. Young men who are so potentially volatile, impulsive, passionate, arrogant, ambitious, inexperienced, need to become the masters of all areas of their lives. Everything needs to come under control. And this was uh, practiced by Apostle Paul. He said he beat his body to bring it under subjection. He reminded us in Galatians 5 to walk in the Holy Spirit and not to gratify the lusts of the flesh. So Paul says right here, exhort young men to walk in the Spirit to seek with all their might, to harness themselves, to live in in spiritual balance and self-control and not to become victimized by these dangers that are lurking all around them without this self-control, guys, without the sound judgment, a man's life is destroyed. It is the necessary ingredient for Christian maturity. Thinking rightly, making wise decisions, setting right, healthy, sound goals and priorities, exercising good decision-making, having profitable friendships and relationships, and having the discipline to appropriate what's in your mind every single day, moment by moment, in every area of your life, is a necessary ingredient for Christian maturity. I want to further define this word, sophroneo. 
look at this word used in six other places in the New Testament to get a fuller picture of what Paul is talking about, what Paul is calling us to. 1 Peter 4, 7. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. It's the idea, so I'm talking to men, right? So idea of it's last minute of the game, right? Every play counts. Every decision counts. The outcome of this game rides on how we conduct ourselves. It's last minute. So any foolish thinking, any loss of concentration, any lack of self-control, this last minute will cost us the game. Everyone, bear down, focus, concentrate. It's not a time for goofing around. That's what Peter is saying. The end is at hand. Have sound judgment. Be self-controlled. From this passage, we infer that sensibility is the ability to think healthily and pray wisely. The ability to make wise and good decisions. Some men, at crunch time, they lose it. Man, they're just no good. They just stop thinking. They lose all mastery themselves. We are to be we're to be different. During crunch time, we understand the priority of prayer, priority of wisdom, and good decision making. Second Corinthians five thirteen. If we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. Again, the same Greek word, right mind. It means to have a healthy mind. It means knowing what is best for you and for those for whom you are responsible. The sensible man knows how to discern and follow God's will for his life. It's a right mind. Lack of time. Final passage, Romans 12.3. Let's turn to this uh, verse, Romans 12.3. Paul just highlighted in 11 chapters uh, grand theology. He applies it to all Christians. And then in verse 3, he says, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, not to over-suffer an ale, not to have high esteem of yourself, but instead to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. This leads us to what I believe is the greatest threat, the greatest hindrance to uh, sound judgment, sober thinking, self-control, is our propensity to have high views of ourselves. This is the one thing that destroys a man, man's right mind, man's clear thinking, a man's ability to see things rightly and to make wise decisions. It's the old enemy called pride. Talking to men over and over, even my own heart, I would say this is the one thing that keeps us from seeing the truth, seeing things rightly, is our own pride. Why is it? Because at the moment of our pride, God is our enemy. God is not for us. If we have lofty views of ourselves, if we have high, if we have a high estimation of ourselves, at that instant, 1 Peter 5.5, 5, God opposes the proud. God is against you. It's the most dangerous place to be as a man, as a person. James 4, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Let me give you a definition of pride given by Thomas Jones. Pride, it is almost always an attitude of self-sufficiency and independence. The mindset that I can handle this without help. Or I understand my situation better than anyone else. 
It is often an attitude of self-righteousness. I am at least as good as you are, probably better. It's this mentality of uh, judging others, viewing ourselves higher than others. It is often an attitude of boastfulness. Look what I did. Look what this proves I can do. It is commonly an attitude of superiority. I'm smarter than you. I'm the smartest. My accomplishments are greater. Or my looks are greater. Or something about me is greater. Pride looks down on others. Pride does not listen well. It is stubborn. Pride is not eager to learn because it is confident in what it already knows. Pride is not quick to admit wrong because it fears it may look bad or lose its position. Pride is competitive and is easily threatened. Pride is insecure. Pride finds it hard to rejoice in the success of others. At that moment, sound judgment is destroyed because God is against those who are proud. See, our, our biggest problem is not admitting that we're proud. I think every single one of us here would admit, yeah, I'm, I have pride in my heart. The biggest problem is we don't see the seriousness of it. We don't take it seriously enough. We think it's like, yeah, i got to pray more, and i got to read the Bible more, i got to be more kind to my wife, and I have to be more, you know, you know I have to be more clean, more diligent. And oh yeah, by the way, pride as well. i got to add this to my list. And we think this is one of those many vices that's in our hearts. No. That's the danger. And this is what destroys, hinders men from thinking clearly, and it destroys their lives. Men make the worst decisions, the most foolish decisions, and it began with pride in their hearts. Think about this. What quality is most detested by God? What quality? What attitude of the heart will always bring about a downfall? What character trait will ensure division? When you're in your marriage relationship, with your children, with your members of the church, with your leaders, with your friends, what in your heart guarantees division? What quality cannot coexist with love? Cannot coexist with love. Pride is the answer in each case. This is why C.S. Lewis called pride the great sin. The great sin. Give you some examples of how pride manifests itself in sin, in many sins. Sexual morality is based on pride. I deserve, mindset is I deserve to have my pleasures. I should not have to worry about my consequences. Pride results in lying. I do not trust God can work to the truth. I have more confidence in my ability to deceive others and distort the facts. Pride results in hatred. I am better than you are, and I have a right to despise you for what you have done to me, and I have a right not to forgive you because I have been so wronged And I don't deserve to be wronged in that manner, in that way. How pride results in rebellion. I know better than my parents. I know better than my wife. I know better than my husband. I know better than my pastors or leaders. I can accomplish better things by doing what I want to do. I am most important. How pride results in ignoring the needs of others. My life is the most important thing. My needs are the most important things. Accomplishing my goals, getting my pleasure, fulfilling my needs must be my priority because of pride. Pride results in ingratitude. I have what I have because I worked for it and at least because I deserve it. Disobedience. I know what the Bible says, but my way is better. How about discord? Pride results in division. I have no need to love you. I am able to accomplish what I need without unity. Pride results in prejudice and racism. These people are, are just aren't good as me. They're different. They're below me. 
Thomas Jones said this. This is why pride is a nasty thing. Pride is as wicked as it gets. Pride hurts. Pride wastes. Ultimately, pride kills. And I would say pride kills sound judgment. Pride kills self-control. And there comes a downfall. The fruit reveals the root. If you're growing humility, and you're growing in sound judgment, and growing in self-control, that means your root is the gospel of Christ. Right? That means the root is the gospel of Christ. But if you're growing in pride, and your blind spots are growing, you're growing in foolishness, and you're losing self-control, your life is out of control. Your heart is not in control. Your hidden vices are growing and they can no longer be hidden. That reveals the root is not the gospel. The root is yourself. The fruit reveals the root. So, what is the way out of pride? I think those of you who are asking or desperately understanding that only thing separates us from that young man on the East Coast is God's grace, that we're one foolish, prideful inclination away from that kind of evil, you're asking, what is the Scripture's antidote for my pride? How can I grow in sound judgment? I need wisdom. I need self-control. How can I grow in this area? The way out of this foolishness, the way out of pride, and the way to sound judgment and self-control is the gospel of Christ. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Threefold agreement with the gospel of Christ is the answer. First is, agree with what the gospel says about you. I mean, agree with it in your heart of hearts. The central tenet of the gospel is that you are a sinner. That no one is righteous, not even one. That you're not only completely depraved, you are definitely depraved. Without that basic fundamental truth, the gospel is unnecessary. Gospel is rubbish. If we are not sinners, we don't need a savior. We don't need atonement. We don't need forgiveness. The first and foremost truth of the gospel is that we are sinners. So the way out of pride and way to sound judgment is to agree with that and say, yes, my heart of hearts, I am a sinner. I am unrighteous. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. I deserve, I deserve to hang on that tree. There is nothing good in me. No righteousness. No value in me apart from Christ. Every morning, wake up and we preach the gospel to ourselves. Today of all days, I need sound judgment. I need self-control. I'm going into a wicked, fallen, sinful world with a sinful heart. I need to tell myself the gospel. And the fourth truth is, I am a sinner. Therefore, I have nothing to boast about. Right? Everything that I have is by God's grace. So, if I'm smart, I can't boast about that. Because God gave me intelligence. Right? If I'm strong, one day I'll be weak. I'm strong right now because of God's grace. Right? If I have this relationship, if I have family, if I have anything in life, understand it's undeserved because I am a sinner. That first truth is a way out of pride, a way to clear thinking. Second is to agree with what the gospel promises to us. We must agree not just with God's judgment on us as sinners, but we must also agree with God's justification of me as a sinner. That through the sacrificial love of Christ, that God justifies ungodly people. Romans 3, 21 through 26. 
The cross of Christ not only declares God's just verdict against me as a sinner, but His declaration of righteousness to me by grace. So we agree with that. We don't look at ourselves and look at all the wicked, dirty, rotten, filthy things that we're involved in and see that as reality. Then we will increase in pride. It will cloud our thinking cause us to lose control. Our response is, I am a sinner, but Christ saved me, and I agree with that promise. He saved me not because of my merit, my goodness, but Christ, God saved me because of His merit, because of His goodness. I don't trust in my sins, I trust in Christ. What Luther said, for every one look at sin, ten looks at Jesus Christ. So you wake up in the morning, you think about, the fact of the gospel, I am a sinner once. And then you think ten times, Jesus is perfect. Jesus is righteous. He's the Son of God. He died on the cross. And He imputes, imputed righteousness in me. And therefore, when I stand before God, I don't stand with my filthy garments. I stand with the righteous garments of Christ. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus our Lord. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Ten looks at Jesus Christ. And He is our righteousness. He is my righteousness. And that is our singular boast. You start out your morning with that. Way out of pride. Way towards sound judgment. Come on, men. You can do this. Agree with the gospel the verdict of condemnation, but also the forensic declaration that we are justified in Christ. The third agreement that closes out the gospel, and now we can get up and brush our teeth and go off to work, is that we agree with what the gospel says about how we were saved. We agree with the gospel. I am not saved by my righteousness. I can't add to God's pleasure in Christ's death on the cross for my sins. I can't make God more happy. I am not saved by who I am, by deeds, or any kind of works. I can't cooperate with Christ for my salvation in any way. We agree that we are saved, that I am saved through faith alone, by grace alone, in Jesus Christ alone. See see how the gospel saved us and it continues to save us. It sustains us. It purifies us. It is our refuge. It is our protection. It is how we are to live by the gospel. It delivers us from pride and grants us sound judgment and self-control. Let's pray. Oh, loving and gracious Father, how the gospel of Christ is our treasure how it is so invaluable and priceless to us, how uh, we hear the gospel preached and it is sweet to our mouths. It is so sweet to our souls. It is so good for us. Lord, we are uh, ensnared by foolishness on every side. Foolishness in this world and foolishness within our own, own hearts. We so desperately need your, your grace and help through the gospel of Christ. Lord, we pray for the younger men of our church and a lot of the fallenness of this world, you'll help all of us in this all-important area to have right view of you and to have right views of ourselves and to see ourselves rightly and to have the mastery, the control, to live according to our convictions, to live according to what we see in the mirror of God's word, that we will not be deceived, deluded, or forget what we look like, but we would peer into the perfect law that gives freedom, and we would live in a manner consistent with the Holy Scriptures. Lord, we count upon your grace, your continual sustaining grace, the grace that saved us, and grace that sanctifies us, Therein lies our hope for us to press on towards the prize of Christ. Lord, uh, young men of our church are our future leaders. They're our future pastors. 
future husbands and fathers. Lord, may you do a, a mighty work in their hearts. This day, this hour, this moment. So when 10, 20 years down the road, they will look back at this day and they will say, God was good to me that day. God was merciful. God was gracious. I stood at a crossroads and God was so faithful to me. Lord, may the Spirit do a mighty work in the hearts of the young men of our, of our dear church. Jesus, name we pray.